Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And we continue this morning in the ugly kings of Christmas. And this morning we're looking at, well, King Herod the Horrible. And I think it's an appropriate title for King Herod the Horrible. Because as you will find, and you probably already know, he's pretty horrible. But my hope is that we obviously do not stay with King Herod, but we look to what child is this, Jesus Christ. So, with our eyes fixed on God's Word in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, let us hear the Word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone on, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother, escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then... What was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the study of your word together as your people this morning and that you, O Holy Spirit, would apply your word to our own lives, our own walks following Christ. 
hear our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been some time ago, but I remember receiving a track. Maybe it's about 20 years ago or more, 30. I think it seems to get longer and longer, doesn't it? But it said, who will be your king? Who will be your king? I think the question is an important one. Now, of course, for us in the West, we have presidents. We have elected officials. But we have those who rule over us, don't we? Like the ancient world, they had kings. We have presidents. But the question is for you and for me is, who will be your king? Who will be the king of your heart? Who will be the king of your motives? Who will be your king? Because Matthew is clearly asking that question in this text. The question is not asked, but he's contrasting different kings, isn't he? And the response, well, the response to that little baby in Bethlehem, Jesus. What will your response be? Or again, who will be your king? Now, I think it's important for us to dive into the story, especially to look at that tyrannical king, horrible Herod. Now, he's very lovable, as you'll see. We'll go through some of his life. And, of course, Antipor was his father. He was born somewhere in the 70s. We're not quite sure on the date of his birth. But he grew into, well, royalty, favored by the Romans, But he, in an early life, had to run from Israel itself because the Parthian Empire most likely knocked off his dad. There was an assassination of Antipor, and so he takes off to Rome where he's crowned in 40 B.C. as the king of Israel. Now, he's not a Jew, right? You know that, that he's not a Jew. He's an Idiomian. And, of course, that's going to create even more animosity and tension, and now you're calling him the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. Of course, he will come back in a two-year struggle against the Parthian Empire will ensue, two years before he kicks them out of the land. That's right, there's all kinds of geopolitics happening behind this story, especially when the Magi come to town. Oh boy, guess where those guys are from? The Parthian Empire. They are the kingmakers of the Parthian Empire. The enemy of Rome. Herod is on Team Rome. Right? He does everything he can in order to encourage and gain the favor of Rome. And so when we come into the story, you could see the swirling anxiety that might be gripping the heart of a man that was a great builder. Why did I go right there? Why, was, why did I go right there, this great builder? He was a great builder. I wanted to start with something positive in the list, the great builder. Herod, the great builder. Positively, he uh, created Caesarea. Anybody been to Caesarea, the port city? It was not a port city. He made an entire port on the Mediterranean coast. It is a marvel of engineering in the ancient world. And of course, there's the Temple Mount, right? 23 football fields in size. Quite impressive, using one of the largest stones ever moved in construction history, some 43 feet long, 10 feet high, think 15 feet deep, that weighs 600 tons. It was quite the structure. 
I mean, it was a marvel. It's one of the great, the ancient marvels. And of course, there's Masada, the great fortress on the mountain. And in Herodium, where he would be, well, when he died in 4 BC, he would be entombed. He was a great builder. And many of the structures that he created through many forms of labor are still in existence today. So there's the positive about him. He was a great builder. But he was a tyrant. His wife, well, he has 10, right? There was 10 wives, 15 kids. But one of them is most significant in his life, and that was Mariami the first. Mariami I lived under a kind of tyranny that is just chilling because his guards, the guards of Mariami, were instructed that if anything happened to Herod, if he was killed, that they would kill her. I don't know if that ever came up in conversations over tea. I'm not certain. But that's the kind of man that you see, a man that is tyrannically jealous of his wife. So, if anything happens to her, him, kill her too. That's the man before us. He also married her simply, I think, one, she was beautiful, but she was also from the Hasmonean dynasty, which was a Jewish dynasty. The Maccabees come out of that, Judas the Hammer, Maccabees. And, well, maybe if I married into that family, I'll gain some favor with the Jews. Who knows? So it's just political expediency in order to manipulate other people, which he's very good at. Herod is also Herod the fearful. His fortresses that seem to be everywhere, Masada being the key fortress and Herodium as well, were places of refuge that he could go in case there was an insurrection. He always lived with this fear. That's why he built some of these structures. They have nothing to do with, I want to build great structures. They want to say, I want to preserve my life at any cost. That's the man before us this morning. Also, a man that was fearful, he was so fearful of Mariami and her family because she came from the Hasmonean dynasty, he had her parents killed. And then finally, in frustration and fear, he had a kangaroo trial against his very outspoken wife. But she, she said she was quite furious. She would go off in rages and throw stuff in pots and pans and things like that. So she was uh, quite uh, aggressive herself. Well, she was executed as well because of fear. And that fear continued on to Mariami's two sons. Those were Alexander and Aristobulus. Both of them were strangled in Sebastia, which we know as Samaria, the city of Samaria, because dad needed to knock them off too because he was worried that they were jockeying for position to take his throne. This all happened in the last nine years of his life. So that's why I call him Herod the Horrible. And just to top off Herod's resume of horribleness or tyranny, and I call this Herod the Pathetic, at his death, he requested, as he was dying, kill those elders that I've recently arrested from the Jews so that people will be mourning when I die. Because he knew no one would be mourning for him when he died. They would be having a party. He didn't want to have anyone having a party, so why don't you kill a hundred elders so that everybody in Israel is mourning? 
And oh, I have another son that I want you to kill, Antipur, named after my father. I think he's vying for the throne. And even if I'm dying, he's dying too. This is the guy that we meet in the story of Scripture, Herod the Horrible. I mean, Herod was a me, 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 me kind of guy, wasn't he? It's all about Herod. And of course, none of us say we're not like Herod. This story is just Herod's a historical figure, and I could never do anything like Herod. You might not be able to do anything like Herod, but have you ever been fearful? Have you ever tried to control people? Have you ever said manipulative words in order to control your husband or your wife? I mean, I, I think we've maybe participated, maybe not to the same degree as Herod, but I think Herod exists like so many other figures in Scripture, therefore our instruction. But again, I think the, the, the conscience says, no, that's not me. That could never be me. I'm not like Herod. Well, the Bible does not speak that, about that, about our hearts like that. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus didn't come for people who are well, did he? He came for sick sinners. Like Herod, who never repented. But many did, didn't they? And believed on him. But I want to not want us just to go away from this tyrannical man named Herod, but maybe to see a bit of our own selfishness this Christmas. Not so that we would hang on to it like Herod did at all cost, but actually so that we might repent of it this morning. Anyone been selfish? Anyone lived like a me, 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 me kind of guy? Any me, me, me kind of guys? Anybody? No one raises their hand when I ask that. Or me, me kind of gals? Oh, good, I got some out there. But selfishness is in our hearts, isn't it? Maybe not at the same level as Herod. But it's there. And Herod, when he heard about the Parthians coming to town, the magi, the kingmakers, where we get the word magician from, he, of course, is disturbed in the extreme. And I love how Matthew makes certain that we know, and all Jerusalem with him. Because if Herod is losing his marbles, and in such distress, you know heads are going to roll. He kills his own sons, why not you? Why not you? And so all Jerusalem is anxious because it appears that this guy is raging and the news through Jerusalem is going forth. Oh boy, he's not having a very good day. Because these Parthian kingmakers have come to town. And it would have been an entourage. We don't know if it's three, we three kings. We are going to be seeing we three kings. That's not saying there were three kings. We don't know how many there were. We just know there were three gifts, not three kings. But of course he's fearful. And we know in the story of the kings of Israel that there was someone who also was a usurper like him. He's a usurper. He's not a Jew, right? He's not part of the Davidic line. He's an Idumean. And we saw in Athaliah, remember her? Let's go back a little while. Athaliah also was fearful of her rule, and she made sure she killed all her grandsons. That's part of the story. So killing infants in the story of redemption seems to be a 
a pretty normal response, unfortunately, in the kings of Judah all the way to King Herod, as we see here in the story. An, an ugly history, but he would have known of that story. But fortunately, the woman who saved Christmas by God's providential purposes, Jehoshabed, hid Joash away for about seven years. But of course, it would be the prophecy about the Messiah that would be most concerning to Herod. This would have intensified his fear from Micah chapter 5 verse 2, and here's why. I want to read from Micah chapter 5 verse 2 because there would have been obviously other discussions that we don't have recorded in the gospel. And so Micah 5 verse 2 says this, but you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. That's talking about the exile. Right there in the verse 3, that's the exile. But verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. That would have been part of the theological discussion. You're talking about the chief priests and the teachers of the law coming together. They're not going to just take only a verse. They are taking its context as well. And the context is a king that looks to possibly threaten the Roman Empire, if you think from a human perspective. Clearly, it would threaten his empire, although he's at the end of his life. This might actually be, 4 BC, this might be the last year of Herod's reign. But he's afraid, because the promised king, and again, he is not a Jewish scholar, but he is calling the scholars to help him out about that, are telling him that if this is true, this is the Messiah from the Davidic line from ancient times, and it's now here. If it's true, you have a Messiah in Bethlehem, Herod. You have a threat to your throne, Herod. And you know what Herod's already scheming to do, because he's good at it. Kill him. That's the man before us this Christmas morning, part of the story of Christmas. And of course, he's shaking in his boots over this promised king. And I think we need to see just about the promised king is what is the response of the Magi? What is the response of the religious leaders? And what is the response of Herod? What's the response of the Magi? These guys are coming all the way from Iraq right, traveling in the Fertile Crescent all the way to Jerusalem, knowing that they're going to enter hostile territory as representatives of the Parthian Empire. But they're willing to travel all this way, and their response is, we've come to worship. We've come to give homage to this king prophesied by Balaam, most likely. This is where they're getting the star will arise. You find this in Numbers, right, Numbers 24, Numbers 24, verse 17. 
And undoubtedly, knowing that the Magi probably had some influence from Daniel and from Jewish sources and so forth, some of these texts would have been swirling around these astrologers as well. I mean, they would have been stargazers and through those stars interpreting what is to come. But here they've come, somehow influenced by some Jewish tradition, by their own traditions, and they've come to worship. They've come to pay homage. They've come to give him gifts more precious than gold, a few of those, incense and myrrh. These are for a king and, of course, gold. And the response of the religious leaders, what's their response? The men should be most excited that the Mashiach, the Messiah, is born. You'd think they'd be dancing in the streets. And their response is, yeah, you got it, crickets. It's cricket. It's like there's no response at all. The religious leaders seem not to care that it might be a possibility that the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. What was, what, was, what was fueling that? Was it apathy or was it fear? Was it fear that, oh, we better, better not set off that guy who can disturb a whole city when he gets angry because then he might cut our heads off? Then he might strangle us just like he did his boys in Sebastia? Maybe we're next. What was it? Was it fear? Was it apathy? Is that the characteristics of a Christian, of a follower of the living God? Fear? Apathy? It can be, can it? We can be very fearful, can't we? Much like I believe these religious leaders were, and apathetic, much like these religious leaders were. But maybe that's not you this Christmas. Has anybody had an apathy about following Jesus? Anybody have the experience of apathy or, or fearfulness, fearfulness to, to speak clearly good news of great joy that's for all people? Anyone? That's a Christian. It's easy to be afraid, isn't it? It's very easy. It's easy to be apathetic. It's the course of least resistance, isn't it? And we tend to go on that path. That's what we see of the religious leaders, the men that should be calling a party and should be having an investigation going to Bethlehem before even Herod meets secretly with the Magi. But of course, crickets. The response of horrible Herod, obviously, in the darkness is to kill the boys. They don't know how many. I've heard you read commentaries from multiple different generations, and it's anywhere from 10 to 20. It was all the boys under two in Bethlehem and the surrounding vicinity. That's all we know. A small group of boys lost their life because of a tyrannical king. And that text is, I think, important for us to hear again from Jeremiah was fulfilled in the death of of these possibly 20 boys. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Ramah was the place of exile. In Jeremiah, the exiles were going through the city of Ramah and they were going to Babylon. 
into exile. Now, it is interesting that Rachel the Word is also one of the traditional sites of, well, Rachel's burial places in Ramah. We know of Rachel's burial place also in Bethlehem. So there's two traditions, one in Bethlehem and one in Ramah, which I find is interesting that it uses the second wife's name, often for Israel, of Jacob, Rachel. And if you stop with this verse, a voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more, you would not get the thrust of the text because the text is swimming in hope. I'll read about that hope. Listen to what Jeremiah says in verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. This is the context. It's one of hope. It's one of return. And then... Going forward to verse 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenants I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive the wickedness, their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah in the in the face of horrible death and in weeping of Rachel's children and saying, this is not the end of the story, O Israel. In fact, a new covenant has come. And this quotation is saying, where is the new covenant? How will it happen? In whom will it happen? What am I before right now? There's a table What did Jesus say about his blood? This is the new covenant in my blood. It would come through that very baby that was instructed by the angel for Joseph to take into Egypt. And out of Egypt will come my son, the true Israel, the one faithful Israel. Jesus Christ himself will be coming out of Egypt. Where Israel failed, Christ will succeed at every point. And his success will take him not only from the cradle, but to the cross. And in that, his death, he will establish a new covenant. A new covenant in his blood. For all who believe in the new covenant, they too, along with the elect, will have life. This suffering in this life is not the end of the story. No, for us who are in Christ, it's, well, it's the beginning, isn't it? It's the beginning of the story. 
What do we know about Jesus? What does Paul say in his letter about the king, the promised king? He says of Jesus that he is a universal king in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This promised king is a universal king. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Gentiles. He's the king that calls all to worship. And it appears whether you are a rebel or whether you are a friend, you will confess and you will kneel before King Jesus. I mean, this is encouragement for us as the saints, isn't it? To remember our kingdom is not of this world. It's not accomplished at the ballot box. It won't be found in the universities. It's found in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's found in His blood. It's found in that spirit that has gone out at Pentecost and is writing the law on people's hearts for 2,000 years. Even for those who are weeping in Ramah like Rachel. That hope has gone out and no darkness has been able to overcome it. It still goes on, doesn't it? It still marches on. No matter how it is derided, no matter how it is attacked, Christianity is still going on to the ends of the earth. And that king who says there's two ways to live, either you follow me as king of kings and lord of lords, and in my flesh and in my blood is forgiveness and a new covenant that is forever. Come. But if you reject me, there's no hope for you. You are out in the darkness. There's no hope for you. But I'm still shining the light. I'm still saying, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to Christ the King. In fact, every Christian of every single day you live, you're always coming to Christ the King, aren't you? Forever coming to Him forever bowing the knee to him, forever professing his name. And that will be for all eternity. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful, we are thankful for your, your vessels that you used in redemption to bring out the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ at Christmas how you used Herod and the Magi and the religious leaders all to teach your church, to encourage your church, to rebuke your church, to correct your church, but to trade up your church in righteousness. And, oh, Heavenly Father, for, your, for the saints here, would you send them out with a wondrous, glorious joy that the covenant in Christ's blood, that new covenant, is theirs by faith, and faith itself is a gift. And then as we feast and as we laugh, and as maybe we tear up open gifts, that our hearts will be so filled with thanksgiving 
because Jesus loves us more than we could ever imagine. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, to you be all the glory, all the praise, all the delighting, all the shouting, all the singing, all are being given to you. Amen.